say is that uh, I think there are like 15 years of dust on those bells. But I'm so glad that they have been uh, shaken off and cleaned off and uh, the gloves are uh, are holding those things and using them to the glory of God. So, uh, praise God. Let's, uh, let's pray together before we look into the Word. Lord, we thank You that there are a number of creative ways that we can express praise. It's so helpful to us, Lord, when we find that there are ways in which we can express the things that are welling up from our hearts, and bringing up the joy and the rejoicing that we have when we consider what you have done. Lord, you are the one that we come to praise this morning. Uh, many of us are here because we have tasted and we have experienced your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we look forward to spending eternity praising you. And we ask that you would help us this day, Father, to reflect on what it means to praise you, what it means to give glory to you, and that you might help us see, the Lord, the, the appropriateness of these responses on our part. And we ask that you would use your word as we look into it this morning to help uh, broaden our understanding and to also help us, Lord, to be more motivated and more compelled to respond with praise and glory to your great name. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. It dawned on me the other Sunday as we were singing a familiar Christmas carol, at least familiar to me, uh, as we were singing Angels We Have Heard on High. It dawned on me as we sang the chorus, I thought to myself, I wonder if there aren't a number of people who have no idea what we're singing in this song. Because the chorus, if you don't know the song, I'm not going to sing it for you, but this chorus generally says uh, these words, four words, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And it repeats that a number of times. And I realize that many people don't take Latin anymore. And uh, I never did. Uh, I took the worthless language of French. Excuse me, all the French speakers. But not too many people speak French anymore. Uh, but in Latin, these are appropriate words to summarize the message that came from a host of angels to these shepherds a long time ago. Glory to God in the highest. And maybe we need to offer that translation <laughs> every time we sing that for people who don't know what in the world they're singing. It really is a great thing to sing. I've been thinking about that because as I've thought through the account of and the narrative of Jesus' birth, it's dawned on me the lengths to which God involved himself to avoid misunderstandings to make sure that the recipients of the good news of Jesus' coming comprehended and had an accurate understanding of what God was doing. For example, angel Gabriel was sent to this virgin named Mary, explaining that she would miraculously conceive and that while remaining a virgin would give birth to a son. It was another angel that was sent to Joseph, as he received instruction in a dream that the angel made known to him how he was to respond appropriately to this miraculous conception that Mary had received and that this woman to whom he was betrothed, he was given direction as to what he was to do in responding to this 
amazing miracle. And on the night in which Jesus was born, an angel revealed accurate information to the shepherds nearby that they might understand and appreciate God's greatness and to indeed respond appropriately to what God was doing. And I want us to look now at Luke chapter 2 as we look more carefully at that particular account. Chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, I want us to consider the response now made to the good news of Jesus' coming as recorded in verses 13 to 20. We've been looking in a number of Sundays here the responses that people have made to the good news of Jesus' coming. This is our third installment of that, beginning in verse 13. Well, I'll back up. I'll read uh, verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds straying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is where I want to focus our thoughts this morning. Verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this, one, this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I want us to consider this response of glorifying and praising God. And I want to do it under three headings this morning. I want to first of all look at the response of this vast number of angels to notice that their response in giving glory and praise to God was an act, first of all, of celebration. Celebration. Here are Joseph and Mary, a poor couple, told and, and by law required to join with others from Galilee, the area where they lived, and they were required to now go because of a census. They wanted to know exactly who was in there so that they could tax them appropriately. And they had to go to their uh, the, the gathering of their original family heritage, which happened to be Bethlehem for Joseph and Mary. It's an 80-mile trek. It's not an easy thing to do, especially if you're in uh, a time in which Mary was with great with child. She's in her third trimester. And when it came time for Mary to give birth, obviously we all know they were not in familiar surroundings. They're away from home. And so they were unable to celebrate as the customary pattern that they had witnessed and had been a part of their growing up years there in Nazareth with their neighbors and family as they uh, often would do. 
As I've read up on what the normal practice was, I've learned that William Barclay sort of paints the picture for us that the customary response of first century Jews to the birth of a child is obviously quite different than it is today. I haven't had a child recently. Last week I said, well, never remember what I said last week about giving birth. But anyway, um, I, I, it's been a while. And when we were welcoming children into our family, there was no email. There was no opportunity to uh, text anyone, which is common today. You couldn't post anything on Facebook, which is instantaneous now. People know what's going on so quickly and word gets out so effortlessly and in an amazing way that word of celebration can easily be made known. We had to call people on the phone. We had to get the camera out, and uh, then, for, then we had to go get the pictures, uh, you know, uh, pub, uh, processed and, and developed and all those kind of things. It took us a while to get the full word out and actually have people see the child. In that particular culture, first century Palestine, at the time of a birth, and close to the moments in which they realized a birth was at hand, people would gather, the friends would gather, relatives, and local musicians would gather to the house where the birth was taking place. And those who gathered, when they heard that a baby boy had been welcomed into the world, here came the singing, here came the music, here came all sorts of celebration among this group that was gathered there. There was widespread congratulations, widespread rejoicing on all accounts. A baby boy had been born. However, if it had been a girl, I don't make this up. This is what I read. This is what they used to do. The musicians who had gathered at the home, because they didn't have any of those scans, right? They couldn't take one of those uh, scans to determine whether it was a, you know, nobody knew those things, obviously, and technology was not there. They'd be waiting around, and if it was announced that a girl had been born, the musicians went home silently. There was no celebration. Everything remained a calm sense of, well, it wasn't a boy. And I came across this sad quote, the birth of a male child caused universal joy, but the birth of a female child causes universal sorrow. What a sad commentary that was about welcoming uh, women and children, uh, girls, into the world. However, that's a whole other side point. The point was the normal pattern would have been great rejoicing and music celebrating the birth of a son. But here is Jesus born while his family's on the road, far from his home, in this out-of-way place. Somehow, well, there's no accommodations for this family and this child, there isn't a celebration for this baby boy who was born. And against this background, it now begins to make so much sense to me as to why a multitude of a heavenly host would suddenly appear while the angel was announcing that there had been a baby boy born. There wasn't anybody else offering celebration, so here comes one from heaven. Since there were no near neighbors, there are no musicians present to offer celebration, even though a son had been born, God sent some of his quote-unquote neighbors and made a fantastic celebration because of what he had done. Now, from the perspective of the world, and we've talked about this for the last several weeks, we need to remember again that there were 
few reasons to really celebrate the birth of this baby boy. Because if you look at it from a human perspective, this poor couple from Nazareth who were not married but betrothed to each other in a very formal and legal binding agreement of engagement, that here they are using a feeding trough to take their newborn son who has been wrapped so that he can't wiggle around too much to keep the warm blanket on him. He's lying there in this feeding trough where animals feed. It it obviously speaks of poverty, of difficulty, of ridicule and scandal and shame that are going to follow this couple all through their life. They're going to have untold questions and snide remarks. They're going to have innuendos the rest of their lives. And since this baby boy was born in such obscurity, the significance of the momentous event could easily have been overlooked and dismissed and ignored, but God took steps to make sure that there was a cosmic celebration to welcome this event. God, indeed, is sending his, in Christ, he has come to rescue a people who fail to keep his laws. And Jesus' birth is celebrated not by a few neighbors and a couple of musicians, but by a vast number of angels who with one accord are giving praise and honor to God. And I've noticed this interesting pattern that Luke develops in his gospel. I've never seen before till just this week as I study this thing through. You take the word glory or glorify, you take the word praise, and you look at it through the book of Luke, you're going to find a fascinating uh, example of a pattern here uh, that unfolds in Luke's writing. For example, you would think that the offering of praise and glory to God would have been something that was constantly recorded as being true of those who were the religious leaders, the spiritual uh, icon, the people who were the spiritual uh, uh, practicers of the day. But as you read through the Gospel of Luke, you find that the ones who are giving praise and glory to God, almost exclusively as recorded by Luke, are the outcasts, the outsiders, those who are unclean, who are not participating in the life of religion. And the pattern begins with, obviously, the shepherds. It starts right there. The shepherds were considered to be people who were untrustworthy. They were never to be asked to come and testify in a court of law of witnesses. Nobody would trust them to believe them. They were also, unfortunately, ceremonially unclean. They were unable to abide by the regulations enough that would allow them to take part in the regular synagogue worship or worship there in the temple. They're cut off from the spiritual community of that time. And yet they are the ones, as we read in verse 20, they're the ones who are included in this great celebration of offering praise and glory to God. That is extremely odd, to say the least, in the eyes of a first century Jew reading the Gospel of Luke. To us, oh, you've heard this stuff before, okay. It's highly unusual. But if you keep going through the book of Luke, the the unlikely list of people continues to get longer and longer. You add to that in chapter 5, a healed paralytic. In chapter 7, you read of a, a village, in the small village of Nain, in which a boy dies, 
and Jesus raises him to life and restores him back to his widowed mother. And the whole town is recorded as praising God and giving him glory. It is chapter 13, a woman of sick for 18 years who's been cut off from the community of faith for 18 years with a sickness that was never cured, now is healed by Jesus. She offers praise and glory to God. Chapter 17, we have a, a, a leper who is healed, offering praise and glory to God. In chapter 18, even more outrageous and, and unbelievable is that we have recorded in that chapter a Roman centurion, a man in charge in the Roman army of a hundred other soldiers. And we read of him standing at the foot of the cross where Jesus was crucified, giving glory to God. That's highly unusual. And all those, these, although these individuals, as a result of Jesus' power, as a result of His love, as a result of Jesus' grace shown to them, that they've now changed in their perspective. They changed in their outlook. They changed in their awareness of the greatness of God. And as a result of that, their identity is now changed. And their hearts have been changed. And flowing over out of their hearts now comes praise and glory being offered to God. It's a fascinating contrast between the angels who have abided in the presence of God ever since they were created, who are constantly offering their praise and glory and celebrating God endlessly, day and night, with the account of Luke bringing in the highly unlikely and unusual recipients of grace and mercy and the love of Christ shown to them, and now they're joining in with their voices in offering praise and glory to God. And I think to myself, what is Luke trying to say here? Could it be that one of the emphasis of this particular gospel is emphasizing the fact that, yes, it is appropriate for those angels to offer praise and glory to God. That's what they were designed and created to do. That's all they've ever done. But how much greater is the praise that God receives and how much is God more magnified and glorified when it comes from the lips of those who have been the enemies of God or been cut off from God or been the outcasts and the nobodies and they are welcomed by grace into this great gathering of those who are giving great glory and praise to Almighty God. I think Luke is trying to say that the celebration of God's grace is always magnified when it's being offered by people who are unworthy and undeserving, desperate sinners who have come to Christ and have heard the good news of God's saving work in Jesus, the sinless Son of God. I wonder how many of us have hearts that overflow with praise and giving glory to God because of an abiding awareness of how unworthy we are before God and how incredibly amazed we are at the grace and love and forgiveness and peace and hope that we've received through Jesus Christ. That is when God is glorified and magnified most, when we find ourselves so satisfied with Christ, our hearts overflow as those angels did on that occasion and as numerous people did in the book of Luke. It was a time of celebration. Do you celebrate? Sometimes I think we're, we don't know how to celebrate in our culture in ways. I think it helps to have music, yes. 
But I think it's something that we ought to continually think of, ways that we can express to God great celebration. And oftentimes I'm convinced it helps to do it in groups with other people. And there was something significant about the numbers of people who were there, the numbers of angels who were there, that great multitude. It wasn't just one angel. They were joined now with this huge number. There's something about that to help us enter into the celebrations to be with other people of like precious faith, celebrating the greatness and glory of our God. Another thought I want to share with you is to think of this response of the heavenly host as an act of exaltation. Now, biblical writers, I want to assure you, never depict angels the way that we see angels depicted so often in our popular culture, popular uh, media today. If you were to Google, pick photo of an angel, um, probably and likely you would receive, you, uh, you would see on your screen some chubby cherub who has a little halo and a couple of little wings that are just ridiculously looking and some sort of golden harp he's holding there. Chubbier the better, usually. But when Luke describes this angelic group that the shepherds saw on that night in the second chapter of his gospel, it's significant that the words he chose there were these. Verse 13, a multitude of the heavenly host. Heavenly host. The word host here, if you trace that through, use in the first century again in the New Testament, other places, it carries the idea of an army, of a large military group. And in Hebrew scriptures, we find dozens of times a title for God is what? Lord of hosts. What the shepherds saw on that night in which Christ was born, was an angelic troops of God's army. Not a small platoon or a small squadron, how many numbers those are, I don't even know, but it was thousands and thousands. It was a multitude. It's almost as if the, the Luke had gone back and asked these shepherds and said, how many would you see? Can't come up with a number. It was multitude. Have you ever heard a multitude communicate something in unison? It's powerful. Years ago, I can remember Joyce and I attending with some young adults in a church where we were on staff at the time, a large gathering, triannual gathering in Urbana, Illinois, uh, of called Urbana. And there were like 20,000 young adults gathered in this large sports arena. And during the time of singing, I can still recall the sense of wonder, the sense of amazement at unis in unison, all these voices being lifted in song and celebrating the greatness of Jesus Christ. It was powerful. It was memorable. It was something that you could still, even today, if you ever heard that sound again, it gives you chills up and down your spine. Imagine being surrounded in a crowd of angels, in a crowd large enough to fill Yankee Stadium. All right, I'll give you equal time. Imagine if you're a city field and you have all these angels filling up that stadium. Tens and tens and tens of thousands. And they all together say in one voice, speaking of the greatness of God and giving Him praise in one voice in unison together. Don't you think that would make an impression on you? Don't you think that would fill you with a sense of 
awe and amazement and reinforcing how great God must be to make all those angels, number one. But number two, that these angels were doing what was appropriate to be done in that situation. They were offering glory to God. What does it mean to offer glory to God? The word glory in Greek is doxa, D-O-X-A, from which we get the word doxology. It means a word of dignity, a word of honor, a word of magnificence, a word of giving honor to God. And this multitude declared to these lowly shepherds what had been affirmed again and again and again throughout eternity as these, or throughout the countless ages as long as these angels had been created, they were giving the proper and correct assessment of God. He is worthy of glory. He is worthy of praise. And I find it interesting that there are very few occasions when you are given opportunity, when humans are given the opportunity to see the vast army of God, the, the heavenly host, and to begin to understand their awareness of who they are and what they're there to do. But I think of an occasion in the Old Testament in which that same host of heaven was able to be seen by a particular couple of individuals. Turn with me back to 2 Kings chapter 6. Follow me here. I'm not getting off track. I'm going to make this all make sense, but follow me here. 2 Kings 6. I'll give about 10 minutes for some of you to find 2 Kings. Not always a, ver a book you can find probably quickly. If you find Deuteronomy, keep going to the right. 2 Samuel, 2 Kings. In this account, we have the king of Syria who is engaged in a combat, a battle against the forces of Israel, who were at that time under the leadership of a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha, the prophet of God, has been amazingly successful in thwarting various attempts of this king of Syria to defeat the Israelites. And the king of Syria is so fed up, he is so frustrated, that every time he plots another scheme that he thinks is going to defeat the Israelites, Somehow, the Israelites have somehow advanced notice of that, and they avoid whatever the trap was, whatever the situation, and they have outmaneuvered this king of Syria a number of times, so, that, so much so that the text says that the king of Syria believes that there's a spy within his own troops. Somebody is leaking the information, and that's how they must be winning. The answer came back from his troops, though, to the king of Syria, that Elisha the prophet is telling them what's happening. We can't control this guy. So what does he do? The king was determined then to uh, try one more attempt to defeat Elisha and the army of Israel. So what does he do? He surrounds the Israelites in the middle of the night. Here's a great strategy. Everybody's sleeping, surround them on all sides. And as he does so, without the without any kind of phone calls or any warning that these people are there. Uh, feel free to get that call. Um, it's not Elisha, I'll tell you that. Okay, here we go. Back to the account here. Second Kings 6. I'm going to read just a second. The plan is at sunrise to attack the Israelites and get this guy named Elisha and finally get rid of him. When the first break of dawn occurs, Elisha's servant looks out the window, and what does he see? He is horrified, because every direction he looks, 
On the horizon, all the way around, he looks. There are chariots, there are horses, there are the enemy forces who are in place. They are finished. It's done. That's it. There's no way out of this. People are still sleeping. How are they ever going to fight? He knows they're coming in just a moment. And so he wakes up Elisha, and he says, We're done. We're cooked. They're here. We're surrounded. Now into the account. He says, What shall we do? The servant asked Elisha, and Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Now you say, hold on. In this servant's mind, he's thinking, Give me a break, Elisha. Come on. You haven't seen what I saw. We're talking, there's troops everywhere around, all on all sides. Knowing this servant had no clue what he meant, Elisha proceeded to pray. He says, O Lord, I pray, open the eyes of this servant that he may see. See what? And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain, that is, the mountains on all sides around, he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all the way around Elisha. What's going on here? On this rare occasion, the servant of Elisha was enabled to see what normally is not seen by most people, the vast army of the Lord. And God's heavenly host, which normally operates in the unseen world of spiritual battles, was made visible to this frightened servant. Why? So that he might become aware of the greatness of God and that his heart would become filled with a sense of Reasons to exalt the greatness of his God. Now I'm going to back. I'm going to come back to where I was in Luke two and try to show you why I feel that's significant. On the night of Jesus' birth, shepherds were granted the privilege of seeing this army of heaven and hearing them praising God, their commander. Glory to God in the highest. There is no one greater than God. We are his servants, is what they're saying This as angels. But God is to be exalted. Why? Because he is supreme over all. As creator, his power is unmatched in all the universe. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God entered the world he made, which was initially good. The world was good as it was made, but it had become corrupted by sin. And rather than displaying the perfection of his justice and righteous reign against the forces of evil and every form of wickedness and wiping clean the whole entire human race, God, in accordance to his matchless, incomparable love and sovereign grace, he rescued, he came to rescue and grant peace to those on whom his favor rested. And although oh, the world would ignore and dismiss God's greatness, this heavenly host reacts to the greatness and excellence of God that God is deserving of all honor and all adoration because he is perfect in everything about him. That's why he is receiving glory. That's why he is a glorious being. It's because everything about God is faultless. He is excellent in every aspect of his being. He is deserving of all honor and adoration. Why? Because his attributes are perfect. God is deserving of glory because he provides peace on those 
on whom his favor rests. Can we find fault with God in any area of his rescuing people who have rebelled against him and sinned against him? You see, the shepherds were so impressed with the greatness of this testimony and the vastness of the number of voices making that testimony that what did they do? Well, you could put it into your own colloquial way of expression. Verse 16, they hightailed it. They, well, it literally says they made haste. They went straight to Bethlehem. They didn't go any they didn't go anywhere else. They would they went straight to Bethlehem with a sense of urgency to do exactly what that angel told them. Because if you had seen the unseen, normally the unseen host of heaven, let me tell you something. You'd know you were outnumbered. And you wouldn't be diddle-daddling around. You would do exactly what you were told. And no wonder they were afraid. They were seeing the expression, the visible light expression of the glory of God in light and seeing this vast host of the army of God, I'm telling you, it made a huge impact on them. So that the people whose testimonies you can't rely on were a testimony you would rely on because those people were shooting straight. There was no reason for them to lie, and they told exactly what they heard. And I'm telling you, they told it with such enthusiasm and such amazement, and their hearts were so blown away by everything that was going on. Believe me, they were believable. I want to talk just for a moment here on this section before we move further about the exalting of God. How do we exalt God? How do we make much of God in our everyday life? For these particular shepherds, verse 20 says, they were glorifying and praising God. That's what felt, came out of their heart. They did what they were told. They came and gave, bore witness of what they were told to do, and they sure enough did it. You realize, my friends, that we have opportunity every day to give glory to God. We can give Him praise. We can offer to Him appreciation for who He is and what He does and reflect on that and give Him, again, admiration for the things that he has done down through the years, not just in your life, but in biblical history. But you know also, my friend, it's also in how you live. It's how you pursue your everyday life can give, bring glory to God. Do you realize that? If you look at Matthew chapter 5 and look at the sermon, first sermon of Jesus, he talks about living in such a way by, the, by our good works People will see what we do and they'll glorify our Father who's in heaven. That our works can be done in such a way that our efforts to try to live before God and serve Him, whatever we're called to do, with whatever mundane or everyday type of things that is, it can be done in such a way that we do it in such a way that it fulfills our purpose of glorifying God, letting people know that God is great because that's how He's changed my life. I'm motivated to serve Him. I came across this quote by... R.C. Linsky, the commentator, he says this, We do all things for God's glory when the excellence of God's attributes is made to shine forth by our actions so that men may see it. That's what Jesus did. He lived, he died, he was raised again to reveal what God is like, to manifest to people, this is what God is like. He did it perfectly. We'll never do it perfectly. But the goal is, is to make people appreciate the greatness of God. You say, what does that mean? Let me give you an example. Titus chapter 2. Just an example, a couple of examples. 
Here we're told in this text of Titus 2 that older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. That sounds like mundane, everyday kind of things. Like That doesn't sound like earth-shattering, heroic efforts. But notice what he adds to that text. So that no one will malign the Word of God. So that if I just do the mundane things of everyday life and doing what I'm doing to serve God, even in my home and with my children or whatever God's assigned me, I can do it and not malign the Word so that my life commends the gospel of which I represent. Titus chapter 2 talks about living in such a way that even as he calls them slaves in that culture, those of us who are employed nowadays, in every way, we will be able to, no one will be able to take the teaching of God our Savior, it will make the teaching of God attractive to people based on how we live, how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, in the home, how we drive our car. Are we these people who have a fish on the back of our car and yet we cut people off or drive in erratic ways and dangerous ways? And that's the example and witness that we bear to the world around us. Oh, that's one of those, look at this guy came out of church. He just sort of you know, pushed me off the side of the road, just tried to get over and get, get the spot before I could get that in the parking lot. You know, I mean, it's just all kinds of ways in which the gospel is undermined. I'm just, again, appealing to us to say, if we could just see that vast host of the heavenly host giving glory to God, it reminds us we're called to join with them in everyday life of making much of God helping people see that the characteristics of Christ's likeness are in our lives, commending the greatness of our God. I'll tell you, my friends, if we truly live that way, the world will be amazed. The world will scratch their head. The world will say, what in the world is with this guy? What's with this gal? They're not responding the way that I would have responded in that situation. And the glory of God will shine into a place of great darkness when they see the love and compassion and the hands of Christ through our lives, touching people, forgiving, sharing, loving, communicating in truthful ways of integrity so that our great God is appreciated. I almost like to think of us as compared to the moon. If you walk across this field, I have the opportunity to walk across the field after meetings late at night, and on a clear night, on a full moon night, wow, it's just absolutely glorious to see all of it. I can see my shadow walking home. It's just awesome. And I keep reminding myself, there is nothing in that moon that produces that light. That moon is reflecting the glory of what I can't see now, which is the sun. And I think of what a great illustration that is for our lives, my friends. We have no inherent glory in ourselves, but we are to reflect the glory of Christ to those that we deal with in our homes, in our schools, in our place of work, in our communities, that is a wonderful privilege. We can join with the host of heaven in our pursuit of that. Thirdly and lastly, I want to just make one quick point here. Stay with me, would you? The response of the heavenly host was an act of anticipation. And all I did here was I just tried to look again, where do I find the heavenly host again in Scripture? We found them in Second Kings. We found them in Luke 2. We also find them in Revelation 19. Maybe you want to find your way there to Revelation 19. For here we read in this amazing text, a dramatic day of celebration is predicted in the days to come. 
in which the writer of Revelation says, After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of what? A great multitude in heaven saying what? Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. Verse 6. And I heard, as it were, what's He going to hear now? The great voice of a great multitude. That's the angels. As the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder. How many of you have ever been jumped out of your skin when you heard the loud thunder break and make its loud noise? I mean, thunder is known to be a loud sound of nature. The writer of this book is trying to appeal to some comparison of how loud it will be someday. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. The marriage of the land has come and His bride has made herself ready. And the text goes on to describe Jesus entering the scene, riding a white horse. He is righteous. He's going to judge. He's going to wage war. And written on His robe will be the words, King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 16. He will be wearing crowns on His head, verse 12. Verse 14, the armies which are in heaven. Notice that, verse 14. The armies... Which are in heaven. Who's he talking about? The angels. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Oh man, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when Jesus will mete out justice to the impenitent. He will mete out justice to those who have rejected his kingship. But there will be a day of great celebration in that final day of glorification when his bride is presented as she will be finally in her condition of being purified. What an amazing it is to think that so many of those who had been involved in great positions of earthly power and prestige, those who are so, you know, the big power uh, brokers of our world, that means nothing on that day. It means absolutely nothing whether they're going to participate in that on that great day. Jesus and his kingdom are going to be established and all of those who've, who have resisted him are going to be thrown to the lake of fire. But watch this. But the weak, the rejected, the helpless, those who are unworthy, those who are undeserving, those ones will gather with the angelic host in heaven and they will offer their eternal praise to God. And they will give God glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Because God is deserving of that kind of glory. He is to be praised. He is to be glorified. He will ultimately and completely reign and rule in absolute righteousness. It's going to happen, my friend. Don't you want to join with that great army? Don't you want to be a part of that number? Don't you want to see even now? Gather with your voice. You may not be able to hear the angels, but you can gather with other believers in giving praise and glory to God. He is King of kings. And Lord of Lords, the one who redeems, the Lord who saves, the one who gives new hearts. Let's pray. Father, in some ways I feel as though it's been almost an impossible task to try to describe or portray some of these realities. Humanly speaking, it's hard to conceive of these things. And so, Lord, I'm praying that in some ways, like Elisha, you will open the eyes of all of us here today, the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see 
how vast is the massive multitude of people who are going to be offering you praise, who are doing it now, who have been doing it for countless ages, and who will be offering you glory and praise forever and ever. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that the privilege of giving you glory and responding by praising you and giving you glory every day. Lord, what a great, wonderful opportunity we have. I pray that we will not waste these opportunities, Lord. Help us to see that you are worthy of praise. You're worthy of receiving glory. That we will be glorified, Lord, in how we live in our, in our homes, in how we deal with the people in our families, how we conduct ourselves in, in terms of dealing with the, the nitty-gritty relationships of everyday life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to give glory to you by how we conduct our lives with unbelievers or around us in our work world whose lives are so broken and full of darkness and full of themselves. Lord, help us, I pray, to, to so conduct ourselves that the gospel is, is lifted up and people see and appreciate, oh, what a great difference is in this person's life. Oh, look at the characteristics of Christ's likeness in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would work in us so that your glory would be expanded and further appreciated by more and more people. Father, I pray that you would also, in the schools, even in this next week, that you would help those who are enrolled in those schools, that they would live their lives in such a way, Lord, they would glorify you, that people would make much of you, that they might appreciate the greatness and grandeur and majesty of our great God and King, Lord of hosts. This is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.